The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. Listen to Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It was great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my to the Mojo Radio Show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome on board the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. We are heading to Strength Town, due north. This show is all about designing your world to be mentally and physically stronger to help us deal with life and all that it throws at us in whatever form. We are taking on the dumbbells this week. A bit cracking show. So before we say good day to our driver of the big red bus, we should observe the rules of getting into a man's car or should we say getting on board a man's bus. What's the first rule when entering a man's car? Respect the man's car and man respects you. Rule number two. Greet the man. Good afternoon, Frank. Good afternoon, Jack. It's the third rule of the car. Good. I love that. Do you know the film? Uh, no, I've never seen that before. Jason Statham, who people would say I look a, li- a, bit, a bit like. <laughs> of course, yes. Yeah, but he had hair. <laughs> oh, no, he doesn't. After a six-pack, they would say that. Um, <laughs> through, through the bottom of a glass of red. Uh, uh, that is a movie called The Transporter. Ah, uh, okay. Good morning, Frank. So, uh, how are you today, mate? Mate, I'm really well, thanks. I had a, a weekend on the tools in the garage, so um, I'm feeling suitably mentally relaxed today. Excellent. And before we get into the show and your remarkable fact, Lola, how are you feeling today? Are you all coated up and ready to roll? I'm fine, thank you. Oh, we love having Lola around. Makes me feel good. So uh, to kick us off, get us into the show, yep. do you have a Robbo's Remarkable Fact for this week? I do. Robbo's Remarkable Fact. It's about time. Let's go. I have to preface this with a disclaimer. I cheated this week. This isn't a Robbo's Remarkable Fact. It's a Jack's Remarkable Fact. (laughs) Right. Thanks, Jack. Jack and I were sitting down talking about research, research for school. And so I said to him, well, why don't you go and research something that you're interested in? And he came back and he gave me me this fact and I went, hmm, I might use that. You know, the soft drink Fanta, right? The orange flavoured drink from Coca-Cola. Did you know that that was actually invented in Germany during World War II because the German Coca-Cola company couldn't import the Coca-Cola syrup from America because of trade embargoes. And also, did you know that the name Fanta derives from the German word for imagination because the German who invented it, his boss had told him to use his imagination and come up with a new drink? That actually is really good. How good is that? Well done, Jack. The Mojo Radio Show. 
Well, I've got a remarkable fact for AP. Okay. You, are you still with us, AP? Uh, yes, I am, Mr. Bert Whistle. Wake him up, nudge him. I am awake. <laughs> Did you know that the Swedish furniture giant IKEA is also a food giant? In fact, they are the sixth largest food chain in the world. Really? I just find this astounding that IKEA is the sixth largest food chain in the world and they're now about to start trialling food delivery in certain European markets. So... For everybody like AP, you'd love a good herring or a meatball, mate, wouldn't you? Oh, a good herring on my toast for breakfast every day. I do like a good herring and I do like a good meatball and I do like the way that IKEA give you the ingredients so you can put it together at home. (laughs) See, what's what's ironic is that when you and I head to Bunnings for a sausage on a Saturday morning... Hot dog. He's heading down to Ikea for some meatballs and herring from from Helga. (laughs) It's about Helga, isn't it, AP? It's all about Helga. It's not all about Helga. There's, it is, um, oh, there's a couple of others. Look, I'm, it's not all about favourites. Oh, yeah. So one more quick thing, and this is just awesome. Hootie and the Blowfish are oh. back on the road. Oh, really? The Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week is considered one of the world's best exercise physiologists and strength coaches. His name is Jeff Nichols and he specialises in sports and tactical performance in basically getting people ready for facing the battles of their life or their profession. So first responders, people going into the army, the navy and so on. Jeff, it's fair to say as you'll hear through this show, Jeff has been through a lot in his own personal and professional life. And what's curious about this that I thought a lot about this is that Jeff, because of that, it allows him to bring a lot of amazing diversity and different perspectives to his work. So it's not just about an athlete or a first responder getting stronger mentally and physically, but also with all he's been through, he brings this really incredible, and the word, it's not the right word, but it's kind of the holistic approach to how we be at our best under pressure and also how we bring strength of mind and strength of body. I find this guy absolutely fascinating and I was delighted when he agreed to be on our little program today. So, Jeff, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. I appreciate you having me. When, um, when people meet you now for the first time and they say, what do you do, how do you like to reply? <laughs> my, my reply depends on the situation, the scenario, the location, that sort of stuff. But typically... Typically, my, my answer is I'm a teacher. Uh, it's it's not not at all untrue. That that is actually how I see myself uh, above all else, other than like you know a father. But even then, like I say, I'm a teacher. So I you know usually that that follows on like what's what do you do and you know what do you teach? And I usually say exercise science, exercise physiology, and that kind of gets a weird look, like they're not quite sure what exercise physiology is, and then. I just very boringly explain it's the science of motion. It's applied to sport. And then they usually just stop asking. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's, that's how that goes. I'm going to try and pull a few things together here because something I'm really interested in since getting to know you through your videos and your interviews, and I'm going to try and put it together, but David Epstein's got a new book. It's just come out called Range. And he talks about the power of the generalist. And this is also something that Pat Flynn talked about in his book, How to Be Better at Almost Everything. And he talks about being a generalist and skill stacking. So having seen these two books in the last couple of weeks and then hearing interviews with you, 
you're a perfect example because you are stacking skills of physics, the military, exercise physiology, the sciences, human performance. And you've got this amazing skill stack now that you draw upon as a teacher. Was that intentional or is it just unfolded that way for you? No, it's certainly, I, I wish I could have taken some sort of strategic credit and said, this is where I intended on being, but that is not at all the case, you know, and I, but I do, I, I do look at my sort of, I guess, resume, if you will, or bio, my bio as that, like it is, I, I have found myself in a very unique sort of airspace, just an experience because I'm the only seal ever in the history of well, since there's ever been SEALs, that was not only a SEAL, but also an exercise physiologist while being active. So that, you know, they, it gave me a really good insight on, right, because there, there's much talked about sport, right, and how to train those folks, professional, amateur, and otherwise, all over the world. There's very few talk about how how those those demographics, the military, specifically the Special Forces population, is trained finitely. There's not a lot of eyes that get to see that, uh, and then I, but I got to see it as a student, but also as an exercise physiologist because that was I was an exercise physiologist prior to my military service. Uh, so it did it, it. I wish I could take credit for it, but man, I'm I'm so thankful and blessed that this is this is how it played out. And uh, but I will say, you know, three or four years ago when I saw this layering as you mentioned it. Um, yeah, I certainly have, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've fueled that sort of, that sort of methodology for sure. So, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't by design, but now I definitely am aware of it. Are you adding to it, Jeff? Is it something now you're aware of it that you go, okay, what's on the fringes that I need to learn that can add value to the people that I teach? Is, is it something you are now leaning into? Yes, meditation. So it's, it's interesting that you had this, you were having this conversation because I literally just got off the phone with someone I consider brilliant. Uh, Dr. John Sullivan is a sports psychologist, has been for a long time. It worked in a lot of different sport, and we were talking about actually Epstein's new book. So, and Spencer, you mentioned this too, because yeah, I do. I, meditation for me is something that it, it, that's kind of where it's led me. It's like it's not that I'm not still evolving in learning and physiology and physics. It's just that there's so much talked about the emotional landscape or the emotional toll that people will take on in professional athletics as well as, you know, amateur athletics at some point. And, and certainly in the world that I came from, there's a certainly emotional toll to that. And so the conversation then is like, okay, well, we, ha we, we have all these acute things, medication, you know, go see a therapist, all that sort of stuff, which, which I'm, I'm all in support of uh, and doing all those sort of things. But at the end of the day, I had to find a way to, to, to do it myself a little bit more regularly, kind of with my history of anxiety and certain things that I have, like I had to figure out a way to relieve stress because lifting weights and running and swimming and, and all of those sort of things that I, that I do on a regular basis, they were not, they were not a way for me to release that sort of anxiety. And a lot of people use exercise. I don't. So for anxiety release, it doesn't work for me. So, uh, you know, long answer, short question, for me, meditation uh, is something that's still within my scope of practice. Like I could say, you know, I've, I've learned a ton in dietetics, but I'm not, mm -hmm. a, I'm not a sports dietitian or a registered dietitian. 
So I, I try to, you know, there's clear delineations between what my expertise is. Meditation can fall right, right in this, and that's something that um, I am, I've spent a lot of time now learning and continuing to learn because it's, it's helped me so much. It's interesting you should mention athletics or athletes because you came out of the Navy after a long, distinguished career, and then you thought, actually, I'll work with athletes. But the comment you made was, I had a hard time relating to them. With all you knew about exercise physiology and strength coaching and human performance, why, why was it you had this gap between being able to relate to these guys in areas that you were an expert in? Yeah, like, you know, the gap wasn't created because of the knowledge of exercise physiology. The gap was created more, well, there is certainly a gap of knowledge within professional athletes, because it's not their job to know this. That's why we're employed, right? So, but for me, the relationship piece was very hard, you know, for a long time. And that's still something I struggle with is building relationships with athletes that, you know, for, for anyone that's working, worked in athletics is a strength coach or a coach, you know, I wasn't talented enough to play at the highest of levels. I was a good athlete. I was a good college athlete, had an opportunity to play professional baseball, but I, I certainly did not have the skills to probably get me to the top, top. But, and I bring that up just because, you know, everyone's trying to find an advantage. And, you know, what I found the biggest advantage to be outside of skill is your willingness to endure. Like a person's real introspective willingness to go, you know what, I'm going to do this, right? And it's not a cliche, like never quit. I'm going to, you're going to have to kill me. Just, no, no, no. Like a real deep in, 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 in like real deep going on. Oh, this is what I'm going to do. And there's nothing that's going to stop me. And when you encounter somebody that has that sort of intrinsic motivation, you don't, you just give them this, you just lay out the blueprint for them. And that's how it was for me when it came to something that wasn't, not that it wasn't skill driven to be in the tactical space, but for me, it began as effort driven. And, and I have a hard time relating to people that have tremendous skill, but don't have the effort. And so that's what I mean is like, and I, and I mean this with respect and love to the guys that do have the talent, men and women to play have the talent to play professional sports. But I will say right now that they are not the mentally strong people that people think they are. They're just exceptionally talented. And then there's a the few outliers that are able to harness that talent, right, and create longevity and routine to it. And it's and it and it doesn't matter what sport it is. Every sport, every culture, every country in the world has these iconic athletes that we look at with dismay and go, "How are these people able to do this?" Well, if you actually get to know most of these outliers. It's, it's based on their process and you don't have to motivate these folks. And, and so that's what I mean is like I've stepped into so many locker rooms in professional sport and, and my first job was to motivate these people. No, I, that's not my job. I'm not a motivator. If you don't want to be there, then you don't have my time. And that's what I mean. It's like I'm not there to convince somebody else that they should be there. And I don't do that anymore. I just tell people this is what you should do to get where you need to get motivations on you. I don't sell that. Do you know what's interesting, Jeff? We've had a number of your SEAL brothers on this show. We have interviewed people who've done huge endurance events, made the Guinness Book of Records for endurance events. 
But if, I've never heard a comment, which I think is gold, where you ask the question of what's your willingness to endure? And it's such a profound audit that all of us can stop because we've, we've, there's been this thread through the show for six seasons on resilience and grit and we always get bigger numbers, we do mental toughness, but I don't know we've had that question which I think is such a good order for all of us to say, what's your willingness on a score of one to 10, one to five, whatever you want to do it. But because we talk about the, the psychology of it, but that is just such a profound question to stop you in your tracks and say, no, no, look at yourself. Now tell me what's your willingness. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, because there's so much focus on the end state of accomplishment in sport, right? the home runs, the tries, right? All that sort of stuff. Like that's the focus. Like, oh my God, how many, how many points did this athlete, how many this did this? And I go, okay, well, that's the manifestation of a lot of hard work. We're focusing on the wrong thing. And so, you know, there, there is a real, I call it a pandemic in this world right now of lacking of introspection. Like it's a real, real problem because you know, we're saying, hey, get into this sport as a child, try, fail, try, fail. And the act of failing is what's going to, you know, be the catalyst for your success. Because, you know, Michael Jordan was cut from a sophomore basketball team and so-and-so is all that sort of that, that, that iconic storyline. I'm here to tell you right now that, like, that's really cool that Michael Jordan got cut from his sophomore year. Of high, you know, about, Michael Jordan was going to be Michael Jordan anyway. Right. That's the way I now now was him getting cut from his, was that a catalyst? I'm sure it was fuel to the fire, but at 15, no one's projecting Michael Jordan to be Michael Jordan. Um, and then that's, so that's so like, kind of get me, let me make my point. My point is this, is that we don't talk at all anymore. We really don't talk at all about failure. We, 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 we gloss over it. Like it's something that, Eh, it happens. It happens to everyone. You know, don't let it bother you. All of this, this positive self-talk when we should be talking about failure, like that is what creates success. In my opinion, like not, not constantly failing, but it's what it is, is it's what we learn from that, that willingness to fail. That's what we're trying to learn. We're trying to say, okay, well, I may not be successful in this, this opportunity, but I'll be damned if I'm not going to learn something from it about myself, you know? And I, and I think that that's really, really rare for people to really say, okay, what bothers you? Like I get, I get people very, very uncomfortable, not, well, it's kind of by design because it's part of, it's a, it's an old interrogation sort of thing. Right. You get a baseline on somebody, you ask them a bunch of true questions, very simple, true questions that would have no reason to be uh, to, to avoid them. OK. And then you just come out of the come out of the rafters and say, hey, what's the most what's the thing you're most ashamed of in your life? Ask somebody that and you'll see right away a clear delineation and change in their mood. Now you have a baseline for lying. OK. And so now you really ask the hard questions. Say, what is it that scares you about failure? Right? You'll get real answers from people. And what you actually do when you scare people in dialogue and they're able to, and you're helping them along the way of saying, this is the path we're going to take to success. All of a sudden they own it. And now we're not talking about home runs anymore. 
because they're going to come. The touchdowns, the tries, they're going to happen. If, if you can get people in a training environment truly, truly focused on their fears, th- then you're stress inoculating them in a physical activity that they can overcome. And it, it's just pure gold. Like they don't fail. People don't fail when you bring up failure. They learn from it. If we can camp here for a second, Jeff, and, and you use the word introspection, but what's... What's cool about this conversation is because you have worked at the elite level with the SEALs, you, if you look at your socials, your website, the work you're doing, you look fit, healthy, strong. But if we look at the introspection, this conversation is coming from a place where you've been dark, like you've gone to a place where you really had to face the mirror of truth and go through all this because the image we see now wasn't the case. And you've said openly that for almost 10 years you showed one story, but you lived another one. Give us a summary of that journey for you to what you now call your resurrection. Yeah, I'll give you the cliff notes of it, you know, just because it's a bit of anomaly because of the way I was raised, my my mother's still alive and she's one of the most amazing human beings on the planet. Like truly love my mother. My father was an amazing human being when he passed away a couple years ago. Uh, I certainly am not a byproduct of a broken home, broken family, neglect, lacking of love or anything of that. Not. I am. (laughs) I'm quite the opposite. But if you've seen a picture of me, I'm a walking billboard of overcompensation. Right. In terms of my size, in terms of my tattoos, in terms of my mentality, in terms of who I created as a human being that felt like I felt like I needed to create this person to survive the world that I lived in, right? Whatever, whatever that means. So when I got out of the military in 2013, um, like a lot of guys in the military, got a little bit of wear and tear in the body. Um, at one point I hurt my back pretty, pretty good, not non-surgical, but I, I, not the military, not the Navy. I got myself, uh, addicted to pain meds and, uh, that, that was an eight-year battle that I, that I dealt with. I OD'd a couple times, three times. Um, I decided to take my life a couple years ago, and I put everything in place to do that, right? Got lawyers involved, like got everything situated to do that. Um, I certainly found, I found my way out of that through uh, therapy, uh, a lot of evasive, aggressive people, non-traditional type therapies. And, uh, a lot of it really was just, like you said, it was, it was the first time in my life I ever put myself in a position to ask myself, like who I really thought I was, like, what do I really want to do? What really makes me happy? What, what makes me, what, what motivates me to get out of the bed in the morning? Cause nothing motivated me to get out of the bed, uh, in the morning. So, you know, kind of that's, that's kind of the story of my past and coming out of that, that resurrection really was, was certainly my faith, not church, uh, not church God, not any of that, the creator, you know, like my sort of, my path is finding a higher power. And it's, I certainly have done that conclusively. And, and, and for me, again, it's, it's not about religion and church. It's not that at all. But, you know, the, the actuation of that really is, is a bunch of things. 
Um, I became very, very aware of the food I started putting in my body. I actually started caring for myself. Like that was the difference is even in my past, I was a fairly large muscular human being, but, uh, it was, it was <laughs> the amount of anabolics and everything that I was taking to maintain my size and health wasn't even, it didn't do that. And I didn't, I wasn't able to maintain my health or my size because of the, the lacking of sleep and the opiates that I take on a daily basis was, was quite substantial. So for me, again, you know, my resurrection really came from, I had some people in my life, not sure why they didn't separate themselves from me personally or professionally. They began to ask me how I was doing, right? They actually cared enough to see how I was doing and why I wasn't responding to phone calls or anything. Cause for eight months I locked myself in my house basically just cause I was just, I was afraid to leave. It was a very strange time for me. So I, uh, once, once I realized that there was a real value in people, like I finally found value in people because I found it in myself. And it's a very strange thing that someone, you know, with my past will say on paper had a hard time caring and loving themselves but I, my identity of who I was, it, it had changed, right? From the child that I was growing up in this very, very supportive, loving, caring, nurturing environment to a world that just eats up the kind and the careful and the, and the, the easy and the lighthearted. I had to become somebody and I did. And, but when I got out of that community with Elena, no, no, nothing negative about the community. That was me. That was my doing, but I, I didn't know who the hell I was. I was like, well, I've always been this, this seal. Like I, what do I do with my life? Like I, I, even though I'd been through college and been through these things, you know, it's, I I had to find things that I loved and, and I was trying to find things that I loved, but I found people. And for me, I really do have an appreciation and a love for people that I've never had. And that, that's been my resurrection is that, Despite some people, you know, still will annoy me, at the, for the most part, I really, really like people and I care for people and I want to see them do well. I want to see my friends succeed. And that, that's what gets me out of the, in the bed in the morning because it's not, it's not so much about the good that I get to experience. It's, it's the good that I get to see in other people and what they experience. That, for me, makes me very happy. So that is a very long question, short answer or short question, but that's, that's it. When you created your identity, which is interesting, you just said that you, a couple of times you said, I, you know, I was this person, I created this identity. We had a guy on the line a couple of weeks ago called Todd Herman, who wrote a book called The Alter Ego Effect. And he talks about creating alter egos like superheroes we step into in order to get beyond our own barriers. And at the same time, he talks about sometimes we had this alter ego that can be the one getting in our way, creating the darkness, creating procrastination. And he talks about giving them a name and you can see them so you can visualise them. When you look back at that time and you know there was, you said you weren't that person, you created this, this other person, do you see an alter ego? Do you, does it have a name? Can you see that person that you became that you now don't want to know? No, I, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, it's funny you said that too, because I was at the Olympic Training Center last week and the, 
the sports psychologist did a presentation on this, naming it, right? So again, maybe you're just been following me around for a week and grabbing my notes, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's ironic that you said that, but no, I, here's the thing. I don't name it. And this is why I don't name it because it doesn't frighten me anymore. Like I really can reminisce about my past. Uh, yesterday was the first time in three years. No kidding. This is ironic too. Last, last yesterday, there was a 5k memorial run for, uh, some friends of mine, a lot of friends of mine were killed, shot down in a helicopter August 6th, a couple years ago, 28 guys were killed and they had a memorial run. It was actually unbeknownst to me, my son, my ex-wife, uh, my son were going to run it. So I showed up to support my son and I hadn't seen anybody from that command that I left since I left in 2013 and they were all there, you know? So I, I say this again, because I don't name it because it doesn't frighten me Two, I don't exclude people in my life anymore because of my past. My past is something that I had to come to terms with, uh, good, bad, indifferent. I really am not ashamed or I'm not at all anymore. I'm not afraid. I'm not, I'm not fearful of my past because I don't have any anxiety or resentment towards the things that I did. Um, and that is why. So instead of, you know, I think there was a time and a place in my therapy where, where that, what you're describing as a, you know, a way of overcoming fear, you know, from a therape therapeutic standpoint, I think there was a time and a place I could have utilized that uh, effectively. But I'm kind of, for me, my personal therapy, I'm beyond that now. So I don't name it because I embrace it. Like I really look back at what I've done and go, okay, yeah, man, this is exactly, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. And I was exactly where I was supposed to be when I was doing all of those things to get me to where I am now. I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. And, and I couldn't be exactly where I'm supposed to be had I not gone through the past that I had. In your past, Jeff, you described yourself as a, terrible teammate in the SEALs. And it's so interesting because we hear about this indestructible dominating SEAL, but we don't hear often about the fallible man inside the SEALs where for, for, for many years you were an active SEAL, but you were popping pills and you call yourself a terrible teammate. And that you've come out the other side of it and we're recording this around Memorial Day holidays. On that day, Memorial Day, when you think about the brothers you lost, the people you served with, and you know that you weren't the best man you could have been in that moment as a SEAL, what, what, would, you, what would you say to somebody? Like what's the comment you make to them in your mind when you are coming to grips with that period of your life, what would you say to them? Yeah, I think that, you know, being a terrible teammate is, 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 a, is a much larger byproduct of the cause. You know, the, the, I was an extremely selfish person. I was extremely, extremely self, self very selfish person. Um, I was only self-motivated by my needs. They superseded others. Now, I will say that at no, at no time in my on target or in my military service did I ever put somebody at physical risk on a, on a mission. Like I never, I never 
didn't show up, so to so to speak, right? It was it was all the other stuff that you know. Eighty percent of the time is it's the training and doing what you're told, and you know, being responsive and all that sort of stuff. So that's really where I fell short. But you know, for me, the advice or the the kind of the mindset that I have now is, like I said, I go back if if someone is being a terrible teammate. Right, and the same the same thing can be said if you're sports at military or whatever maybe, but if also you could be saying, hey, if you're being a terrible dad, a terrible spouse, a terrible boyfriend, it's all around this. In my, for me, it was at least. You know, the people that were closest to us, we tend to take for granted they're always going to be there. Our friends, our family, right, our close friends. You know, our friends in the military that have quote unquote gone to war with whatever it may be athletes you've gone and played a grand final with or a super bowl with or whatever it may be those those particular things are supposed to forge a deeper brotherhood and 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 they do they most certainly do you know on the flip side then for where my behavior was less than stellar as a teammate you know, I, that's that's what I would tell people is like it, it, it's very likely if you're being a terrible teammate, you're probably being a terrible husband or boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever it may be. The big issue is this, is that you're not sorting out your own stress. What you're doing is it, it's like a bowl, like a bowl of water being, being ran under a faucet. Right. You have two choices in a hypothetical world. Get a bigger bowl or get a drain to put into that bowl that you can regulate that stress and that water is representing stress going into your life. You got to do two things. You know, for me, I got a huge bowl. I handled stress very well for a long time. The problem is that bowl got full and I had no way to filter it out. It just started spilling over the sides. It's affecting the people closest to me. It's not affecting my neighbor who I don't get along with or don't know. These things affect the people closest to us first. So in my world where I was a teammate, right, every day, close proximity teammate in life-threatening situations, they're close to me. That's family. I couldn't keep a relationship at all. I alienated my family entirely because I just didn't – I felt that that was the best way to keep them safe was never talk to them. Don't visit them. Don't answer their emails. Don't answer their phone calls. You know, so I think that's the point of it all is like the big picture was I wasn't dealing with stress. It manifests itself in me treating people close to me terribly. And that was the lesson. You said your six-year-old son snapped you out of the addiction. Can you remember the actual moment, Jeff? Because I suspect for quite a while you knew this, but you never took action. But then there must have been some catalyst. And you said your six-year-old son was the person who snapped you out. Do you remember the exact moment you went enough? Yeah. I, I, you know, the instance of why I don't recall the, when I do. And I will, I will say that, you know, my, my, my ex-wife and I are separated. We, you know, we split, split time with, with our son. He's with me half the time and he's with his mom half the time and she's here local. So I do see my son quite a bit, which is fantastic. But you know, at the time, because it was like a week on, a week off, or whatever it may be. It was, you know, when I'd get my son, I, I wouldn't use, right? It was just, it was odd. It was, it was just, it was a very strange thing because for years I would use pain meds on deployment when stuff hurt, right? I'd get home, I'd stop using. Well, I got home after a certain deployment and kept using, 
right? My son would come over, be, I wouldn't use. And then eventually, <laughs> I was using all the time. And things that I needed to do and needed to care about, like I needed to get him up, needed to get him to school, needed to do these things. That need, that, that maternal, if you will, that paternal sort of need for your children, that child, like that urge to do right, it, it wasn't there one day. It was, it was a weekend. It was a Saturday. And it just, the, it, I never neglected my son, but I got to a point where I had to choose if I was going to, like feed him, do something with him, whatever it was. And when I made a decision to go, well, do I really need to do that now? Man, it was like it was like a like a right cross just punched me right in the face. I was like, "Whoa, like that's not good. Stop." And I literally like that day I just stopped. It was it was just that. It was like I don't want to play with my son. I don't know if I verbalized it out loud, but I remember thinking that exact thing. Go, I don't want to play with my son. And I that was it. Never I've I've taken two Percocets since that was, I did it. I did it. It was like years later. I was, my back was really killing me and I was traveling with a friend and he had two, he had Percocet, he had knee surgery and I took two Percocet. You know, normally I was taking 50, 60 a day. I was taking, I took two and I got so sick. I went to, we went to dinner and I haven't been that sick for a long time. It something in my body was like, Hey, we told you not to ever take this again. <laughs> so I, I paid for it. I did for 24 hours, man. I, it was borderline. Hey, I might go to the hospital because this isn't right, man. This is not normal. So I obviously didn't die and didn't get hurt from it, but it taught me another valuable lesson. Your body is not meant for that. So stop putting it in your mouth. Jeff, you, you, you talked about the fact, you said it earlier in the show, and I've heard you talk about this on some of the videos, that you, you said that a lot of your life was a lie. And we all, we're all doing that to ourselves every day. We're making up all the excuses and we procrastinate and we justify our mind by lying to ourselves with the dialogue. And there must have been times during that where you knew you were lying to yourself but you thought it was the truth and so you just did it anyway. When you look back on those times and then sit in that chair today, what process do you go through in your own mind with all that experience and all you've learned? How do you how do you go about determining what's a lie and what's the truth in your own mind today? For me, I'm not sure who structured this sort of conversation with me once, but I'm almost positive it was Dr. Jordan Peterson. Um, it, it was either it was on a Joe Rogan podcast or it was in his book, and. You know, he, he really laid out what a white lie was, like really what it was in someone's life and how it can change you, change the, you know, the storyline, if you will. And as I went through it, I realized that my whole life, like my associations in business, um, my associations and friendships all had some residual white lie about it, about my experience, the things I've done, the things I've seen, all those sort of things. And not in the, in the coaching world, not in this, not in the SEAL world. And I realized that so much of that was just, you know, and it, it was the, here, let me give you a, give you an example. The same one I've, gave, I've given before, but it's like someone says, Hey, yeah, Jeff, like Jeff, you, you, you were at this professional football team, right? And what were you doing there? It's like, Oh, I work for, I was working for him, working with him, whatever it may be. 
right? That's an exaggeration. The truth is, is I was at Team X for two days consulting on something very specific, right? Now, in my head, one sounds more prestigious. Say, I work for X team. I worked for them. I'm consulting for them. Now, if I add a little bit of detail, it's specific. But I think what I didn't realize or I didn't give value to is it doesn't matter who's asking you that. They're both equal. It's like, cool, like most people's lives don't live the way I do. Like I, I, it's very cool, very awesome, very, very, very blessed that I get to go spend time with organizations, teams that I do. But in my head, it just wasn't enough. It wasn't inflated. It wasn't important enough. You know, it's like I felt like I had to inject some sort of prestige into it. And now – so they answered, you know, that, that's how I used to be. It used to be this a bit of exaggeration of like, oh, I work for this team and whatnot. Now, now I find a real comfort in telling the truth, like real truth. Like this is what I've done. This is what I do. And because I think that what it does is when you're very specific about the truth, it's very transparent, right? That's the deal is People are the world's best lie detectors. They really are. We are. We, we have these behaviors, especially if we've been around someone enough. And that's something that I can't overemphasize enough is being so very specific about the things that you do, not like in go in great detail. But if you haven't done it, think of this. Like anytime someone asks you a question, if the people that could say that it's true or not true, if, they've, if they're standing there with you, what, what are you being asked? Like, or what, what's your response? And so for me, that's what it is, is, is if, if, if I'm being a question, being questioned or being asked a question on something, right? Let's say it's parochial driven about physiology or it's about my work. I'm just going to leave it specifically at the truth and that's it. Not exaggerate. Um, and you know, for me, it took practice. So that's like the, the, the punchline to all this is that the long winded punchline is that this is not something that happened overnight because we do grow, we do practice exaggeration. And even if it's like we're not trying to lie at some point, it just isn't right. And now I audit all of everything that what I say. Now, certainly I still say stupid, stupid things. Sometimes I get ag- aggravated or whatever, but but when it comes to what I say, I, I pretend as though the person, myself, right, is standing next to me. I know I'm lying. I know I'm exaggerating. And that's all I need because anxiety and fear come from things in our past that we cannot control. That's lies, right? We worry about the stuff that we said. Is it going to come back around? That's fear, right? It creates anxiety, all of that. If you don't lie, you don't have to have, you don't have any fear. Like in conversation, like my ex-wife would call back, oh my God, what does she want? Well, now I don't have any fear. I haven't been lying, right? That's the thing is if you are not lying, you don't have fear. I don't have any fear anymore because I'm not lying anymore about stuff. So that, that for me is a big one. I've attached fear and, and lying together. Something you talk a lot about now as an extension of that, Jeff, is empathy. And something you did say, which I thought was a great, and I'll quote it, you said, understanding empathy makes you better at almost everything. What I'm curious about is the connection between empathy 
and fierce determination because I suspect that the level you play with the athletes, the special ops people you work with, they have fierce determination and they would just plow through anything in order to achieve the mission or their purpose. And so with this fierce determination is essentially we, we hear and see it quite a bit in sport and business where it's win at all costs and that's what I'm focused on. That's what I'm all about. Yet you're saying that there is empathy when you have true empathy, you understand it, it makes you better at almost everything. Talk me through the connection. Where, where is that middle point of executing empathy and having fierce determination? Yeah, I think kind of picking a category maybe, well, again, it's the military space, we'll, we'll call it that. You know, for me, it's, it come, empathy is it's an aspect of service. It's an, it's an aspect of love. It's, empathy is a subjective emotion, right? It's not cut and dry. It's not a yes or no. There's levels of it, right? There's, you have different levels of empathy. Empathy for people in your life. There's different levels of it. You know, when we're, when we're talking about family, we're talking about life and death situations, we're talking about very high-performing, you know, events, sport. Well, whatever sport you're playing, if you're playing in a grand final, the people across from you, are experiencing exactly what you are in that sport, right? On a battlefield, you know, <laughs> referencing my, my trip to Colorado again, a person that I met was a strength coach for the Serbian swim team and volleyball team. We were combatants at one point, truly, like legitimately combatants. At the end of his career, at the beginning of mine, if we had encountered ourselves on a battlefield, we would have been shooting at each other 17 years ago. We were in Colorado Springs sharing an environment together, showing pictures of our children, the birthday cakes. Like that's, I love the idea that I can meet somebody who at one point I would have killed and would have done that to me. And we were united by sport and empathy and love of something, right? So that's what I mean is that empathy, if we allow empathy to be a part of our lives, again, we'll use the SEAL world, right? And it's not that I want to have empathy necessarily for the combatants, but the person standing next to me, I knew what he went through. I probably know his family or some of the family. Like, that is where empathy makes us extremely powerful because that empathetic connection to love to our, the people we care about, it will get us through anything, Right. You can overcome anything if uh, we're not necessarily talking skill driven. Right. You're not going to be able to hit a, a 93 mile an hour slider. OK. If you've never hit in Major League Baseball. Right. But my poor talk, we're talking we're talking empathy for enduring. And, and, and that's what we're dealing with. And if you get yourself involved in something where you really have to consider other people's feelings because they might be the same as yours, right? Like, oh my God, I'm afraid. That guy's afraid too. Well, that's a unifying bond. That's, that's not something that should drive a wedge between someone who's standing next to me in a combat environment. My, my love for that person, my empathy for what they have to endure because I have to do it too. That's powerful. It's not like, well, that guy doesn't understand what I'm going through. 
right? Even the enemy on the other side's like, man, I'm trying to kill him. He's trying to kill me. Like as morbid as that sounds, respect, absolute, absolute respect for that person. If they're willing to do that and I'm willing to do that, man, like what we have more in common. Like if you find somebody in a combat environment willing to take a life of their combatant and vice versa, there is nothing in that moment in time that is makes you more similar to that human being on the planet. Nothing is more similar than you and that person you're trying to kill. You're the same. So you better admit that in yourself and realize that, oh my God, we're all human here. And not everything like race, color, creed, all that, all that stuff. That stuff goes away when you really look at love and empathy and hate. You start deciding, you realize like, oh my, there's way more in common than somebody I dislike than I'll ever think that, that we'll have like not in common. Like that's, that's something that I always try to keep myself grounded and go, if I really dislike somebody, it is a, it is damn near a fact that there are more similarities between that person and I than differences just for the fact that we're human. So that, that's my answer to that. You, you talk about the battlefield, which is extreme duress, no doubt, when it's all on the line. Or in a Super Bowl, the ball gets to Tom Brady. That's extreme duress. There is somebody who's going to do a big presentation for their biggest piece of business today in a boardroom somewhere in the world, and they're experiencing extreme duress. There is a parent who is in a situation that is putting them into that zone of extreme duress. Can we learn to focus and really be in that moment. Jeff, is it something you believe we can focus our minds and ourselves when we are in that situation of extreme duress? Without a doubt. No, no question. It, it, it's, hard, it's hard for people to, to realize this, but it's, it's, you learn this behavior, right? There, there are, I think that all humans are capable of going to that fight or flight mode and fighting. I really think that given certain situations, again, and that going back to empathy, very few people by themselves will, will successfully struggle, right? Like get through this sort of thing. But when you're surrounded by people, um, it, it's, it's, it's far more useful. But um, I mean, I guess people don't realize that these things can be learned through everyday activity, right? Mental toughness, we'll call it. resiliency is the clinical term, right? Achieving some, some, some variable level of mental resiliency, right? That comes as simply as this. If you're a child and, you know, like for my parents, my parents worked full-time job and they had, they owned a restaurant and they were busy all the time. Well, my parents said, Hey, you need to be responsible for some certain things. We're going to help you. But mom and dad, we got to go do this, provide this for you. So you need to be self, self-reliant at the basics, right? Cook for yourself. You need to learn do laundry when you're a kid. You need to do these things. And so I think that that's what's missing a lot of times in people's life. It's not that, you know, this mental toughness thing for the SEAL, we use that. It's like, oh, my God, I've got to achieve mental toughness somehow so I can become a seal, right? And then everyone's scratching their head going, how do I do this? 
How do I get mental toughness? How do I, do I just say, stop being, stop being a wimp and go do it? No. If I look at my life and go, well, how is it that I got to this point? Well, it's because of my, my parents. They made me self-reliant. I made, and I learned to be self-reliant. I'm not saying people didn't help me along the way, but it's like, I got myself up every single day to go to school. Why? Because it was the right thing to do. Was it easy? No, it was terrible. Like, so don't overlook doing the little things that you don't want to do every day. That is more difficult in my mind than someone saying, hey, go, go run to the top of that mountain. I'd be like, well, if someone says, hey, here's TurboTax, do your taxes, that's worse than anything I could ever <laughs> want to do. You know, it's like, okay, so you put it in perspective a little bit, right? But people don't challenge themselves with just little stuff anymore. You know, in, in abundance, like every day, do something that's like, well, this is challenging for me. You know, that's that if you if we honestly, every generation's and this is not at all to take away from the current generation, because the current generation, in my opinion, is fantastic. Like, I don't, I'm not a terrible generation X or or, you know, whatever sort of demographic that we're talking crap about. That's not my thing. The millennials, that's not, I'm not, not my position to talk crap about them because they're the one I think they're going to have to fix this, this, this world that we're in, that we're relying on them. But, you know, I think that challenging yourself every day to do something very simply every day, that, that for me, and that should be childhood. That was my childhood every day. I had to do something right. And now I do the same thing. So don't underestimate the little stuff. Don't because you'll never get the home run if you don't practice the hours and hours of boring hitting off a tee. You don't get the the mental fortitude fortitude to achieve. I'm putting air quotes up now. Big achievement. You don't get that achievement opportunity unless you put in the really awful, unsexy work. You know, through school, through college. You know, I I worked a full time job when I was 12. Right. That was my first job. I worked 40 hour summers when I was 12, working on a farm, mending fences, cutting pigs tails and whatever else I needed to do. Right. Because that's what had to be done in my house, you know, in the, where I grew up. So don't be easy on your kids. Teach them to be tough. Right. And we do that by giving them tasks that, that they can achieve. And then when they do it, tell them you're proud of them. Right. What a concept. Like, I, it's amazing how many parents don't tell their chi- children they're proud of them. They'll tell them they love them. And that's great. That's great. But tell your children you, you're proud of them. Right. If you're not proud of your kids, it's your damn fault because you're the teachers. When you look in the mirror now, Jeff, if we camp on just kids for a second, with all you've been through, your backstory, where you are today, when you look in the mirror and you see a reflection back to you, and sports psychologist Michael Gervais calls it game recognises game. The game you put on is what your son sees. What are you looking to embed in your son as a man that you want reflected out of that mirror? I, for my son, well, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a fantastic question because I've, I've not thought about that too much. And that's, that's definitely a question I would, I would enjoy digging into, but... Uh, from my hip, you know, the reflection back to my son that he'd be able to see is, you know, just really kind of be simple, man. 
practice being kind to people. And it's it, this. Here's an example, and it is it is this simple. Go to the grocery store. The man or woman that's checking you out, like for, with your groceries. The next time you see someone that's checking you out that looks like they've had a rough day, which is and I and I and I use that as example is because that is a for many that's a very thankless long job that they're on their feet all day dealing with people. That's a tough job. It really is. So the next time that you have, you're in line and somebody, it could be a restaurant, somewhere where you're checking out and someone is serving you and it looks like they're having a terrible day, ask them how they're doing and don't let them just say fine. So no, seriously, like, how are you doing? Like what, tell me about your day. Like, is it, was it a bad day? Was it a good day? Like, which one is it? You know, teach your people, teach your children that to not just say, hey, my name's Jeff, and then you forget what their name is. Ask somebody how they're doing. What you? Because here's the deal. You have had to have asked yourself that and dealt with that question before you can ask, ask somebody else. Or if you do ask somebody that, you're going to inevitably ask yourself that question when you leave. So if you want to, find, if you want to be able to help somebody, right, be kind to them. But you need to be kind to yourself too. And when you ask yourself that, go, what kind of day was this today? I don't know. You ask yourself, like, really, how did today make me feel? What was the best part of my day? Ask your kids that, right? Sh- show them, show your children that you can care for a stranger because you're not going to put your hands on them, but words are powerful. Words are extremely powerful, especially to somebody that's having a bad day. So be that for your kids. It's interesting, Jeff. I I really admire people who come on to our show who, who walk the talk. And I want to set up a story which is exactly you demonstrating what you just said, where some time back you were sitting on a plane and the guy next to you starts talking to you. And you said, for whatever reason, you started having this chat. And the guy said, you won't believe it, but I lost 60 pounds. And you looked at this guy and said, actually, I believe you. And I bet you couldn't sleep, you couldn't focus, and you probably tried to kill yourself. And he looked at you and went, yep. Yeah, he thought it was crazy when I said that to him, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and you said, at the time, all these things compound on themselves and end up with you know, darkness. So that, to me, what you just talked about in the supermarket aisle or a restaurant compounds itself and just shows what can happen when you have that conversation. And that guy probably needed to have that conversation with somebody, albeit a stranger. Why, why is this happening, Jeff? Why are we in a situation where you can, it's so prevalent that you can see it in someone's eyes? Well, I think <laughs> when you are accurately auditing how you feel, you can better assess other people. You know, and that's in that and that and the reason why I say that is because no one is when it, when an 8-year-old little boy that grew up in a wonderful home has a birthday party and you see the little kids smiling, there's no question as why the 8-year-old is happy. No question. When that 35-year-old man or woman 
is sitting behind a counter and looks like the weight of the world is sitting on their shoulders, their head is down, their mouth is open, right? That to me is just the same flashing neon sign of, of the opposite of the eight-year-old boy. Like if we stop and watch, watch, look at people and then say, if I look like that, what mood am I showing? Sadness, regret, fear. What is, what is it? My show or am I showing happiness, right? Am I showing adulation? Am I showing pride? Am I showing, showing love? People cannot hide from the emotions they're feeling inside, right? You had made, you made a comment like, yeah, by all people ask me all the time, how do you look the way you do? I have a clean mind. And I don't, what I mean by that is like, I love myself now. Finally, I care for myself. I care for others. I appreciate the opportunity that I have. And it shows in my physicality now, clean mind, clean body. And that's, that's, that's the win right there for people is that everyone is a lie detector. Everyone can audit because it's, if you go to any psych, like any therapy place, a lot of places, a lot of times they have the, like the eight and a half by or eight by 11 and a half inch card that has like the smiley face, the frowny face. And they go, put your finger on the one you're feeling, right? It's the same thing. When you see people, look at them, go happy, sad, angry. What is it? You're going to, you'll be very quick. You'll, you'll be surprised at how intuitive you are without any skills on picking up what people are feeling. It's, we wear it on our face. So pay attention. Just one final thing, because I'm very mindful of our time today, Jeff. And uh, just something I'm curious about. You said you go to the shooting range and you practice shooting really slowly. What does that bring to you? It's, it's, it's like a form of cliche. It's a form of meditation. What I mean is this. So when you talk about, when you, when you let me back up for a bit. When, you, when you've experienced a lot of trauma, your body will make decisions at that, that very critical biochemical point, right? You touch a hot stove, not only does your finger get burnt, but your brain biochemically will never, ever forget that what a hot stove feels like, okay? So what you've done in the action in just a microsecond, you have taken a physical act and created a stimulus that makes you remember, and so then I go to the range. I am physically doing something that I'm competent, that I know is very difficult, that I have to do in conjunction with breathing and certain other things. Well, because I'm actually physically doing something that's, quote unquote, I say, I say violent in the sense of that the, the muzzle velocity that's being created, that gun moves very quickly. It's a violent action in your hand. That's what I mean by violent. You have to be ready for that, right? And being able to manage your your body's position, the way it's breathing, and a physical action that in and of itself can be very difficult, it's meditation. It is that. It's your taking, again, if you've been concussed, one of the best ways to improve that concussion, like a concussion protocol type thing, is what you do is you take finite physical activity and you combine it with decision-making, you're able to reset neural pathways much quicker. So what does that mean? 
I'm on the range, loud gun, violence, dangerous, all these sort of things, but it's a skill I know. So to make that skill more challenging, I slow the tempo, I slow the pace, and I, might, I have expectation of much higher accuracy. I am trying to create a critical decision in something that's incredibly hard to control. I am not only developing skill, but I'm developing a way to improve my capacity to prove my skill. It's I'm growing that bowl that I mentioned, you know, that the water's going into. Meditation and these sort of basic, right, hitting off a baseball tee, right, very basic skills in, in sport done at a certain rate, you learn that skill much better under duress. So you further reinforce basic skill and life saving under duress or you know you react to it you react to a ball react to a person you can do it much quicker if you reinforce basic skill can i just ask one more question jeff before you go shoot yep if that's true if i tie all that you just said to there with exercise physiology strength training ever since i was a kid i've gone to the gym and i can't recall how many times somebody would say you should do your reps to failure. If I'm doing reps to failure, am I not reinforcing that the same way you just said about there's a hot plate, I put my hand on it, it reinforces it, I now know that's hot. In your mind as an exercise physiologist, where does training to failure fit? Is it a good thing? Should we? Or are we demonstrating something you're demonstrating on the range? Training to failure is something you plan for. What I mean is is this, is like training to failure on a daily basis teaches failure, right? From a neurological standpoint and the manifestation of the physical. Now, there is a fine line between what we'll call it conditioning for that, right? That stress. Um and, and kind of because we're talking about elite sport, you're always walking that line of overtraining and then that sort of stuff and minimal, minimal like, and again, we're saying when people think failure in their head, when it comes to physical activity, they're, they really just think that they can't, it's not, not doing it anymore is the only thing that cat, is categorized as failure, Right. When you're talking about the reaction time of like a cricket player, right, relax of the, of the batter, that that's not something that is developed um, merely one way, okay. But but what we're trying to do is if if every single time weight training is the easiest thing to kind of use is is if every single time you get under a bar and it's and you get to a point where it's just heavy and you can't do it. Well, at some point, again, especially if you're trying to get stronger, you got to keep getting heavier, or you got to move that weight faster. You got to move yourself faster, right? If you if you if you all you ever do is encounter fatigue happens, failure happens, can't accomplish task. That's what's happening is you're unable to accomplish a task at the given whatever the speed, the accuracy, whatever it is. So that's the difference is. You want to train to failure when you're saying, hey, today is going to be just a kick in the butt. And it's supposed to be because this is to challenge your willingness to be here or to endure. That's where failure is at. But also it's like, well, you might encounter failure in a weight room and say, well, you didn't do the lift. Well, is that a byproduct of strength? Is that a byproduct of effort? Or is that a byproduct of skill? 
at a very, very high level, that's usually that's usually a byproduct of poor programming or the skill hasn't been acquired yet. For 99% of the population that's not an elite athlete, teaching yourself to fail is a bad idea. Like a great boxer doesn't practice getting punched in the face. It's a bad idea. But that doesn't negate the fact that someone needs to try and punch him so he can avoid it, learn to avoid it. So that's what I mean by failure. Failure is failure is, is not perceived as what it is. Failure is an absolute. It's not like this continuum. Once you get to diminishing returns onto a bar or like on a track and field, right? There's the person that wins the Usain Bolt wasn't, you know, awarded the 200 meter gold medal just because, well, he's the fastest of the 100. He's certainly going to be the fastest of the 200 as well. That's ignorant. Right. And that's and that's the kind of the upside to the other side. That's why you don't train to failure, because then you're going to assume that just because you accomplish something, you can accomplish the next greater thing because you went to failure. But you've never acquired the stimulus to endure. Failure is the end. It doesn't mean you keep going and learning. Right. So you have to set up spectrums of failure. That's why there's skills and there's different levels and you make you make it more and more difficult. Okay. You don't start off out of the gate, right? Swimming, your first swim meet isn't against Michael Phelps. Well, some some it may have been, but you, you see what I mean? It's like <laughs> you don't acquire that, right? You don't acquire this ability to overcome unless you've learned to succeed. Now, failure is gonna come along the way, but you know, that's that's an aspect of enduring, but that's not the aspect of competition, right? We don't practice bad swings and hope that a good swing is going to show up on game day. We don't. We don't practice really terrible kicks for a try and then come game day, you're expected to kick it, right? Kick it through the uprights. It's a terrible idea. So that's that's what I mean by training to failure. It's like there's this big sort of awesome badge of honor that I've trained to failure. It's like, cool, man. Like I didn't train to failure and my accuracy was 30% better than yours. And I increased, I, I did 600% more volume than you. So cool. Like you puked out in the first 30 minutes. I, I kept going for another hour and outperformed you because I was able to manage my accuracy because I was able to measure and manage my effort. Jeff, I could talk to you about this stuff for Hours. I'm intrigued by you, your backstory, your being of service to others, the philosophical approach you have to everything in your world, let alone this stuff you do on exercise physi- physiology and strength coaching. It's just, mate, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real honour to be able to chat with you. I've got another two hours of stuff I could talk to you about easy, but um, I'm very respectful of your time. So thank you so much, mate. You betcha. I think... Uh Send my love to everyone in Oz because uh, I, 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 in my past, I've definitely frequented Australia and love it very much, very much love it. So uh, for everyone down under, um, hope this finds you well, all of you. Where do people find you, Jeff? Where, where's the hub for all your activity? So my, my Instagram is JeffCSCS. Um, CSCS stands for Certified Strength Conditioning Specialist. It's transparent to you all, but... It's just, it's just what's back there. My, my website is performancefirstus.com. On the Memorial Day 
holidays over there. We really respect your work and thank you so much for your time, mate. You betcha. Seriously, my, my pleasure. Honor to do it, honestly. Take your marks. Hi, I'm athlete Dina Castor, and I've run a lot of marathons in my time, but I've never been so happy to see the finish line as with Gary and Robbo on the Mojo Radio Show. This... The thing I love about podcasts is who you get access to. And I, I heard this guy interviewed on, I think it was Never Quit or Mic Drop, one of, my, one of the shows that I, I quite like when I'm working out. And I heard the guy talk and it just made you want to move more and lift more. But then to think you can write to them in a humble way and then get them to spend an hour with you, I just absolutely love, love the medium of podcasts because back in the day when you and I were kids starting out in media, there's no way you could access to talent like that. No, no, not even. Well, the telly, if you were lucky, if just jagged an interview with someone when you turned the telly on, absolutely. So to take us out this week, uh, I've got a, a pop quiz hotshot. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz hotshot. Pop me, baby. I'm going to talk you through some song lyrics. Yep. Your challenge, should you choose to accept it, is to tell me what track they come from. So, okay. Hello Darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains. Oh, is that Simon and Garfunkel? Sounds of silence? Tis. Lola. I'm listening. Play that track. Disturb the sound of silence. I thought that was a very topical track for today mm. when our guest, Jeff, had been through his own form of darkness and now he embraces it. So let's finish with this one. This is a second pop quiz and this will be the song that will take us out, which is a bit more Jeff Nichols. Okay. You need cooling, baby, I'm not fooling. Ah. Going to send you back to schooling, a way, way down inside. <laughs> Honey, you need it. That's just not a Jeff Nichols track. That's a Mojo Radio track. That's Led Zeppelin. Hula love. We're out. You need cooling, baby, I'm not fooling. I'm going to send you back to school. Way down inside. Honey, you need it. I'm going to give you my
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.